I also wanted to take an opportunity to welcome those who are new or listening for the first time. I realize that when you do something new, it can be quite awkward. You can step on a skateboard for the first time, you can play basketball for the first time, you can visit someplace new for the first time, or you can come up here and preach on a Sunday for the first time. So <laughs> hopefully, I only bring that up to say that uh, I'm sharing in the awkwardness of doing something new, so I appreciate you being here. Our text today, as Alyssa just read, is in Psalm 144. Uh, that will be on page 524 in the books in front of you, or the books, <laughs> in the Bible in front of you. Um, as Matt and Brian always say, if that Bible would be a blessing to you or somebody you know, please take it with you. And I'm not going to reread it, but we are going to go through it. But first I want to tell you a story about a man who turned to God as his rock and fortress, echoing the prayer of David that we'll read about here in Psalm 144. His name was Richard Wurmbrand. Wurmbrand was a Romanian pastor of Jewish descent, and he lived in a time of turmoil and oppression during the mid-20th century. He was a man who knew the truth, or, or knew the true meaning of, of seeking refuge in the Lord, because in 1948, he lived in communist-ruled Romania. He decided to his life forever declare his faith in Christ and criticize the communist regime for forcing churches to become propaganda tools. For his bravery and his devotion to his faith, he was rewarded with 14 years of prison. It was enduring unthinkable torture and hardship. His first stint in prison lasted for eight years in complete isolation. The solitude was crushing. He later revealed that he had no Bible, no books, no music, nothing to write on or with, and it was a point to break a person's spirit. Yet in this immense suffering, he found his refuge in God. Richard would later say that in the stillness of solitary confinement, he learned to love Christ in a way he could have never have imagined. The themes of Psalm 144 resonate throughout his experiences. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge. After his release, Richard became <coughs> a voice for persecuted Christians worldwide. He moved to the United States. He, he formed the Voice of the Martyrs organization that assists persecuted churches worldwide. Verbrandt's life demonstrates the raw, enduring faith that we're going to see in Psalm 144. His story shows us how even in dire circumstances and in persecution, one can turn to God as a refuge and find deliverance. Today, as we delve into Psalm 144, let's remember his extraordinary example of faith and resilience. Just as Richard Wurmbrand or King David turned to God as their fortress and deliverer, we can find refuge and deliverance in God during trials and tribulations. Now, this summer, as you all know, or maybe you don't know, <laughs> we've been going through uh, the fifth book of, of the Psalms. And before each sermon, we kind of take a few moments to discuss the structure of the sermon. It's become one of my favorite times. It's allowed me to 
theologically nerd out on uh, the structure, and I've just always had a love for, for poetry. And uh, so we're going to do the same. We're going to spend a few minutes just talking about the structure, but, but less so about the breakdown of, of the stanzas, because Psalm 144, Psalm 144 is uh, rather unique, as you'll see. Uh, it's the last of the royal psalms, so it's the last time David's mentioned. It's sovereignly placed between a series of lament, uh, laments like uh, Brian, Pastor Brian last week in Psalm 142. And then it goes into a series of, of hymns to close out not only Book 5, but the whole Psalter. <coughs> in, uh, in many ways, we see lots of shadows of Psalm 18. Uh, some wonder if Psalm 144 isn't simply a, a prayer of Psalm 18. Uh, Reverend scholar Derek Kidner, who uh, Pastor Matt actually mentioned in, in week one, and I got to confess, brother, I probably went out and bought Derek Kidner's commentary like in the middle of your sermons. <laughs> but it was a good one, and, and well worth But Derek Kidner, uh, this psalm is a more of a mosaic than a monolith, skillfully composed from fragments of other Davidic psalms. This psalm is a vibrant collage of David's prayers, his praises, his pleas. It's, it's a unique composition. It's, it's evident in its unique composition. Most substantially, we see echoes of Psalm 18. Yet there are other traces of the Psalter that are visible too, each piece adding depth and color to the overall picture. Uh, in my slide here, I, I kind of highlighted, you see Psalm 18, Psalm 8, um, those are kind of the, the big cross-references, but then that huge list of cross-references underneath there all come out of this psalm. This psalm is a, is a dynamic compilation, and as much it's an expression of David's evolving faith journey, and it's also a testament, a testament of his poetic skill. And so we begin in verses 1 and 2. David gives us this profound opening. He says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains for war, fingers for battle. Isn't that beautiful imagery? I, in my mind's eye, I picture a soldier on the hillside looking down upon his hands. Maybe, maybe he's been in battle that day or going into battle. We don't really know, but he's looking down at his hands. He's seeing all the intricacies in his fingers and his fingertips, and he's seeing the involvement of God in his life. The, the picture for me takes me to my dad. My, my dad has spent 30 plus years in the concrete industry and his hands show it. He's got crazy strong hands, rock fingers. His hands are so strong that uh, my brother and I, today we tower over him, but we refuse to play the game Mercy with him. If you're not familiar with Mercy, it's a game where you interlock hands and you squeeze and you, you, you bend and you try to get your opponent to cry out, Mercy, Mercy, let me go. Uh, now, let me just say, don't try that at home, kids. Don't, don't go to your home and, and dominate your siblings and say, well, Mr. Brandon taught me this new game. <laughs> but my dad's hands were strong. And working in Dodge City, Kansas, the city we grew up in, it's a relatively small town. And after 30-plus years of building concrete structures, you, you go back to my hometown, and you look at all these buildings, and these buildings do what? They provide refuge to the citizens and you can kind of see just standing there looking at building after building my dad's hands helped build that one my dad's hands helped build that one my dad's hands helped build that one and it's kind of profound to sit there and think man my dad's hands have had a part in bringing refuge to so many citizens of this of this city and 
Yet, as, as amazing as that is, it's nowhere near as amazing as David's point where David acknowledges right at the beginning, when we're in relationship with God, we start with the refuge. David could have said, David said, oh Lord, my rock. He could have said, my fortress, my shelter, my refuge, who trains my hands when we know, <clears throat> when we know that God, sorry, When we know God, he already brings refuge, but that doesn't mean relax and have to do, have any kind of response. See, David sees, sees this refuge and he acknowledges this refuge, but he also acknowledges that he has to go into battle. He's being called to, to be a doer. He's being called to respond, and we as Christians are called to respond. James tells us we're called to be doers of the word. And it... it uh, there's, a, there's an awareness of the present that we should carry in our walk with the Lord, knowing that through whatever we are facing, ultimately, the Lord is our steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold, my shelter, my shield, and he, and he in whom I take refuge and who subdues the peoples under me. It's kind of astonishing, really, that, that the Lord would be this to his people, Um, David sees that astonishment. He, he recognizes it, and he asks the question. He says, Lord, what is a man? Now, David's not confused. He's not caught up with the, the cultural nonsense that we see today in our culture. He's very aware of what a man is. He's very aware of the insignificance of, of humanity. In fact, that's what's, asked, that's what's provoking him to ask the question. Because we are the created. We are not the creator. <clears throat> we are like ants looking up to humans. We are insignificant, and yet God is merciful. He is a father who brings refuge and continues to deliver us. We cannot earn God's favor. Not even David, a man after God's own heart, and who was dedicated, he was victorious on the battlefield, was he ever earning God's favor? And when we are doers of this word, we are responding to the love that he shows us. We're not earning it. This is an opportunity, this opportunity for, for our response is, is short, and our lives in the spectrum of time are, are relatively short. And if you don't know this God that I'm speaking about, Father, your Lord, then I plead for you to turn to him and get to walking and talking with him. I don't aim to, to preach hellfire and brimstone and, and scare you into a, some kind of Jesus promise, but I want you to grasp the reality of our situation, that we all have the same problem, and that our lives are short. David shares it like this. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Life is hard, but not long-lasting. And though we are insignificant, God offers such a mighty shelter. And he does, and we're going to expand, and we get to see how he offers such a mighty shelter as we move on into the third stanza, God's intervention in human affairs. The psalmist continues through verses 5 through 8, and he's painting a vivid picture of God's infinite power and divine intervention in the lives of his people. 
Here we see a heartfelt plea to the Almighty to descend from the heavens, to demonstrate his power, and deliver his people from the hands of foreigners who speak lies and operate with deceit. Our God is a God who bends the heavens and comes down. He is not a distant deity detached from our earthly reality, but a present, but he's present in our, in our times of need. When David called on God to touch the mountains so that they smoked, he invoked the same God who descended on Mount Sinai with smoke billowing from its peak. It's an image that's a compelling reminder that when we call upon God in our distress, he responds with the total weight of his power and his might. In the late 18th century, John Newton, who was a slave trader at the time, encountered a fierce storm at sea. Newton cried out to God for mercy. And with the winds were hallowing, and the ship was threatening to capsize, in those terrifying moments, Newton experienced a dramatic conversion. He would later write the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a testament of God's deliverance from a life of sin and despair. Just like in the days of David, God stretched out his hand from on high to rescue and deliver Newton from his figurative many waters. David's plea for deliverance also draws our attention to God's intolerance of deceit and falsehood. The psalmist appeals for rescue from foreigners whose mouths speak lies, whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. Here, David distinguishes between those who acknowledge God's lordship and those who resist it. Like David, we too are often surrounded by falsehood and deceit. We face circumstances that challenge our faith and confront forces that aim to undermine our commitment to truth. But in such moments, David's plea serves as a reminder of God's unchanging nature. He remains committed to rescuing his people from the grip of deceit and delivering them from the freedom of, to the freedom of truth. When we engage with this passage, we are urged to mirror David's confidence in God's active involvement in our lives. We are called to recognize God's hands in our deliverance, acknowledge his intolerance for deceit, and celebrate his powerful intervention when falsehood threatens to overpower us. This acknowledgement is crucial in understanding God's relationship with his people. It's a relationship built on trust, tested through trials, and fortified in the face of adversity. Verses 5 through 8, we see a, a call to appreciate the depth and the breadth of God's intervention on our behalf. It encourages us to seek in his deliverance when overwhelmed by life's many waters. Above all, it invites us to experience the immeasurable joy, unparalleled security that comes from knowing that our God bends the heavens and descends and fights for us. Just like in the stormy days of David, the turbulent life of John Newton, or the persecuted life of Richard Vermbrand. He remains our rescuer, our deliverer, and our ever-present help in times of need. And then we shift over to the, the third stanza, which I think I just called the last stanza of the third stanza, so you're following along. <laughs> um, in verse 9, David declares, I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-string harp. I will play to you. This is an expression of joy and victory. It's a songwriter's response to the blessings and deliverance. 
brothers and sisters, I long for the time to join David in worship. This new song isn't an ordinary melody. It is unique. It's reflective of the specific blessings and the victories that God has bestowed. In our Christian walk, we too should sing new songs to God, a testament to our gratitude for our daily unique blessings. The phrase new song isn't just about the latest contemporary Christian music, but the fresh expressions of praise we offer to God that correspond to our current experiences of his grace and of his mercy. Our worship should never grow stale and continually be renewed just as God's mercies are renewed for us every morning. For us as Christians, the application is pretty clear. Whether we're leading a business, a church, a family, trying to manage our own lives, our victories come not from our own strength, but from God. Therefore, we should live humbly, recognizing that God is the source of our successes, and with confidence knowing that it's the same God who rescued David that stands ready to deliver us. Yet even as David praises, he pleads for deliverance. Or sorry, even, yet even as David praises God, he pleads for, for deliverance. Rescue me and deliver me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. It's a striking plea. Even in his victory, David acknowledges he has a continued reliance on God for protection. Today, we live in a world rife with deception and falsehood. And like David, we need God's deliverance from every lie that seeks to entangle us. This could be the deceptive allure of sin, false teaching that distort the gospel, or the discouraging lies we sometimes tell ourselves about our worth or our own abilities. And we see sort of a, a shift come as we move into verse 12, we see a, a, a pronoun shift to the my hands, my fingers, and now we, we begin to read, and I'll put the verse up for you, or verses just in this final stanza up for you. May our sons, and he's talking about our daughters, says, may our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut from the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce, and may our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. And may our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing, and may there be no cry of distress in our streets. I want to il illustrate what David's talking about there, I think, with those first couple of verses particularly uh, may our sons and their youth be like plants full grown and our daughters like corner pillars. For, for the, uh, may our sons and our youth be like plants full grown. Uh, there's a cross-reference there, at least in my, my translation, to Psalm 128.3 that says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. I didn't know a lot about olive trees. I still don't, but I did some reading and some research, and they're, they're kind of fascinating. Um, they're abundant all throughout the Mediterranean, and they're significant in the Bible, obviously. Uh, the olive tree thrives along the coast. It's embracing the salty air and the mist. It's resilient. It's productive even in harshest conditions. It's capable of flourishing where other trees cannot, and it's and it can yield copiously with minimal care. 
And so this picture David gives for his sons, or our sons, and then likewise for our daughters, like corner pillars cut from a structure of a palace. You'll see up on the slide, here's a picture of what this might have looked like. This was a common in, in architecture design. They were, corner pillars were critical structure elements in ancient buildings, especially in palaces. They were often beautifully adorned and carved, enhancing the structure's aesthetic appeal. But their significance went beyond beauty. They provided support, stability, bearing the weight of the building and ensuring its endurance over time. And this image is from uh, the porch of Caryatids, which I probably butchered, uh, on the Acropolis of Athens, Greece. It's a picture of our sons being strong, like trees, full-grown, healthy, our daughters being supportive and uh, beautiful, memorable. And the, the last part of the, that section that we read is, is a little bit more clear. Granaries full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands. These are all a description of being well off agriculturally. And so I think it raises the question, is David giving us a permissible model for prosperity gospel? Is he telling us to uh, pray for full bank accounts and for full tables and for, for all these and these things to be the focus of our, our, our prayer? I, I think you, you could pull that out of context and, and get there. But if you listen to, to Pastor Brian's message last week, or if, you, if you've been around or you read the whole Bible in context, you know that that's not the case. David, he's motivated off of the promises that we actually see in Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. I am going to read all of this, and I realize that you can't because I smashed it all into one slide. If you can read it, it means you have eagle eyes. And look, I drew an elk tag this, this fall, so take those eagle eyes, come out with me. Let's... Uh, <laughs> let's uh, Let's have some success there. I'll give you some of the meat. But I'm, I'm going to read it for you. It is 14 verses. If you want to follow along, you can find it on our Bibles in page 68. It is going to be worth it. Trust me. And, it, and, and listen as I read it, or as you read it yourself, for some things that sound really familiar. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way and flee before you in seven ways. I just love that imagery. The Lord will command you 
the blessing, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. And if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, and all of the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground and within the land of the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will get open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to the land in the season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down. And if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them, and if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left, or to go after other gods to serve them. So David's banking on, on these promises that, that God has given him. And r remember, in verse 12, I said that the, the pronouns change. We, still, we saw that, right? It, it went from my hands and my fingers to our children, our daughters. Now, some translations even include the word then at the beginning of verse 12, as if to say, if the king goes this way, so well see the picture that's being set up for us? It's a picture of, hey, if this shepherd king obeys the commands of God's, it'll go well for, of, of God, <laughs> it'll go well for the people. It's a picture of what happens, or better said, what happened when our shepherd, our king, perfectly obeyed the commands of God so that it goes well for his people. It's the gospel on full display. It's the good news that while we're inherently separated from God, Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, miraculously of a virgin, wrapped in flesh, perfectly obeying God's commandments, taking on the wrath at the cross, conquering death to rise above and be our king. It's right here. And if you don't know that to be true, then I plead with you to respond and turn away from the deception of this world. And we're not done yet, because verse 15, David gives us yet another profound verse to bookend the whole psalm. And he says, blessed are the people whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. I'm going to put up the, the CSB translation there, because you can see that it uses the word happy. It says, happy are the people with such blessings, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. The, the Hebrew word there is ashra, which I probably butchered the pronunciation of. Forgive me, I haven't taken Hebrew yet. But it means happy. And it means blessed is he who is happy. And I actually got to witness this happiness in my own testimony. In my early 20s, I was an atheist. I wasn't a nominal believer. I wasn't uh, uh, an agnostic believer that maybe there's a God. I was an atheist, and I hated Christians. And, and let me just pause there real quick and say, if you have the sort of testimony where you don't have a, a, a story at the end, or you don't have a, a date or a, a time you can remember where you um, changed, 
I just want to encourage you that if, if you are his, you have a story to tell. And don't let any thoughts of the contrary uh, get, get in the way of that. But I have a little bit of a story. <laughs> and I won't tell you the full thing. But I, I was. I was an atheist. I, I moved out here. I got invited to this party with my Christian friend. It was a 4th of July get-together. And I knew that my Christian friend was going to be there with his Christian friends, and it was going to be all Christian-y, and I didn't really want to do it, but I didn't have a lot of friends at the time. So I thought, all right, I'm going to go. I was reluctant, but I went, and I saw these people with happiness in their life. It was amazing. They had life. They were happy, and it wasn't a product of their circumstances. It wasn't because they... Uh, were enjoying the food or f the weather was nice or any of those other sur superficial things. It was life. And it's something that, that the Lord used to start softening my heart towards him. This happiness, it's not a transient feeling, but it's an enduring peace and joy stemming from the knowledge and relationship that we have with God. It's a result of genuine acknowledgement of God, not a, not a mere profession, but embracing God Almighty as our Father, the central figure of our lives, not just as a supplementary being to call upon in our times of distress. This acknowledgement of God brings true happiness. Despite the trials that may arise, there's joy in serving our Lord and using our talents for his glory and spreading the gospel Earthly pleasures are going to wane. God remains satisfying and fulfilling regardless of our changing circumstances or advancing years. Today, we, we journey through Psalm 144. It's a poignant example of King David's trust in God as his refuge and deliverer. We saw David begin the psalm in praise and recognize God's personal and relational nature, his power and his majesty. We saw him plead for deliverance from the deceptive worldly forces that foresees the blessedness and the prosperity that comes from obedience to God's commands. To draw these threads together, think back to that olive tree. It's thriving along the Mediterranean coast. Its resilience is a testament to its acceptability, or sorry, its adaptability in harsh conditions. Its productivity is a testament to its design. The olive tree stands as a reminder of our relationship with God, like the olive tree standing strong and productive amidst the salt and the storms. We too can thrive in the harshest of life circumstances when we are rooted in our trust and obedience to God. Even more, this tree doesn't only stand for itself, it provides shelter for others. Its olives are used for food, and its oils used for light and for nourishment. Similarly, when we obey God, we become a source of blessing and light for others. I urge each of you today, in light of the reflections from this psalm, to respond in obedience to God. Blessedness, David speaks about is accessible to each of us as we walk in God's ways and allow him to be our refuge and our deliverer. It's not a happiness contingent on fleeting circumstances, but it's an enduring peace and joy found only in deep relationship 
with our Lord. In all of life's battles, both seen and unseen, may we echo the psalmist's words, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. May we find our strength in our Lord, our rock, and stand against the deceptive forces of the world. May our lives be like the thriving olive tree, resilient and productive, illuminating the world around us with the love and truth of God. Let's respond in obedience, trusting our Lord as our fortress, and as a result, living a life that reflects his glory. Let's step into the world as living testimonies of God's transforming love, ready to share his message and be the light amidst the storm. For indeed, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. We'll take a few minutes now to uh, quietly pray and meditate on God's word. Thank you.